Before we start this podcast, I want to dedicate this episode to my parents, both of whom have teaching degrees. And so when I talk about education, not only education that needs reform, but education that needs revolution. I do so in a spirit and an attitude where, you know, it means a lot to me. And education is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Something else that I care deeply about is media and it's independent media. And so if you believe in what we're doing, not only just with this episode, but with the podcast in general, and you have the ability to support independent black media, you can do so through Cash App. Uh, it's dollar sign making M-A-K-I-N, a different show. That's dollar sign making M-A-K-I-N, a different show. You can also support month to month via Patreon. It's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, backslash making a different show. Again, that's Patreon.com, backslash making a different show. Thank you guys so much for listening, and welcome to Making a Difference. Um, to, be a Negro, to be a Negro in this country and to be um, relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage. Almost, almost all of the time. You wonder why I spit the truth and not to make no dope. To make a difference. Thank you for listening to Making a Difference. I'm your host, Ken Macon. I can imagine that we have some folks checking in who may have never listened to an episode of Making a Difference. And so for that, I sincerely thank you for checking in with us today. The discussion and dialogue that we're going to have on this episode is a discussion and dialogue that's being had all over the country. And it's the conversation about reopening schools. And so, you know, obviously it's a very uh, it's a precarious and perilous time in a lot of different ways. This, this is a time of uncertainty. And, you know, with that and in that spirit, I wanted to have three educators on this show, uh, one of them to include uh, the South Carolina or I should say the reigning South Carolina teacher of the year. Uh, the other two gentlemen whom uh, I'll be speaking with on this episode are actually both out of Richmond County, Georgia, and, you know, have their own unique qualifications uh, and experiences in, in education that I think are just so important to this discussion. Uh, before we get started, I want everybody to listen and understand that the goal of this podcast and the goal of this episode uh, was to have a discussion in a way that address all of the that address many of the concerns and topics related to reopening schools. And so I didn't want this to be, uh, for lack of a better terminology or phrasing, uh, a both sides argument. I believe that particularly in this country, we've reached a point where is that our discussions are so hyper-partisan or so both sides, if you will, that there's never really any progressive discussion and there's never a, a focus on the underserved. And so what we end up having is, is a bunch of hyper-partisan politics and we never get to a particular solution. Uh, the educators on the show, some say, absolutely not. It is not time for kids to go back to school Others say, hey, it's okay for the kids to go back to school under certain conditions. Where there is a consensus among the three educators on this show is that all three of the educators spoke boldly and conscientiously um, to their concerns as it relates to black and brown students. And to that end, you guys are about to listen to three really standalone conversations. Like each of these conversations could have been their own episode. But I don't want to keep you any longer. I want to go ahead and start the discussion right now. Thank you again. For listening to making a difference i'm here with uh really like a little si my my little sister i say that because this young lady uh she actually graduated with my younger brother um they went to the same high school they're actually classmates uh, she's gone on she's had an incredible 
uh, career in terms of education, so much so that she's actually been recognized by the state of South Carolina. Um, she is the uh, current, look, for a few more weeks, um, she is the uh, current and uh, reigning in 2020 uh, South Carolina Teacher of the Year, um, amongst many other accolades and accomplishments. So glad to have uh, Ms. Shonda Jefferson on uh, this episode of Making a Difference. How are you doing today? I am great, Kenton. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this show and talk about something that I absolutely love and I'm passionate about. Um, that's education, uh, kids, and teachers. That's good. That's good. I want to ask you about, look, I'm scrolling down Facebook and, you know, obviously, you know, follow you, you know, we're friends on Facebook. Like I said, just it's, it's familial in that way. But I also follow the uh, South Carolina Teacher of the Year account. And so I was looking at that account and I saw this letter and I knew the letter was real because it had um, in some ways it had disregarded uh, the pr a professional. It, it used a, more of a colloquial term. Um, <laughs> it was, it's entitled It's a No. Um, which I thought was dope. I thought it really just spoke to the urgency of the moment. And I thought it was, it was real. It was relevant, um, in a way that I think just resonated with a lot of people. If you could just tell the people about it's a no and the letter, um, that you wrote in regards to your concerns about reopening schools. Yes. Um, so I wrote the letter. It's a no for me in response to, uh, governor Henry McMaster's, plan for reopening schools he held a press conference it was about a, a week ago stating that you know schools should he gave two options essentially schools should open five days a week face to face or you know they parents should have the virtual option as well but the the issue with that statement is that it was contradictory to the plans that were already developed and created by a team to, by a team of experts, teachers, superintendents, um, officials at the State Department of Education. Uh, we had come together on the Accelerate Ed Task Force to create recommendations for schools to reopen in South Carolina. And that was approved at the end of June and districts had already started using that plan to create their going back to school plan. And, you know, when he came out with this, it was contradictory and it caused so much confusion. But the major thing for me that made me feel like, feel like that I needed to, to speak out about it was the issue of health and safety for all students and for our teachers and anybody that's inside of a school building during the school day. So that, that caused grave concern. Um, and one of the features of that Accelerate Ed plan, it stated based on the DHEC and CDC guidelines, we use the disease activity map. And the disease activity map shows high area of spread, medium area of spread, and low area of spread. And based on that map that day, every area in South Carolina was a high every area of spread except for one school district. And with that indication from the map, it stated in our recommendations that schools should choose a virtual option um, as their back-to-school plan. If it was a medium area of spread, we recommended a hybrid option. And if it was a low area of spread, we, we recommended, you know, potentially a modified traditional option. But what he said was, was not 
any of those options. It was a totally different plan, and it caused, like I said, a lot of confusion and frustration um, amongst educators and um, school district officials. I want to ask you a question on that. Um, Do you believe that it was more of a disconnect um, with the governor's office or with the governor, or do you think it was something more deliberate? Um, I feel like it was something more deliberate because he knew, um, and I could... Uh, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure he knew that as an Accelerate Ed Task Force that we were meeting to form, to make recommendations. And the task force was put together by the superintendent of education, uh, Molly Spearman. She formed a task force, making sure she had a diverse representation of um, educators, um, school leaders, district officials. And we had the support of advisory groups that contained uh, nurses, mental health officials, and even people that work at the State Department of Education. So I feel like if he wanted to be a part of any of those meetings, um, that he could have been a part of the meetings and expressed his ideas um, during the time period when we were meeting. Uh, And I know know that he knew about the summary uh, of the meeting as well on dedicationtoeducation.com, which is where we released all of the plans with a press conference so I feel like it was deliberate um, for him to make this and it it came you know directly after uh, our federal agency uh, released their recommendations or their statements as well man I'm just I'm still amazed that um, at the information that you shared in terms of basically every district um, being in a in a high-risk area except for one is that accurate Yes, yes. And now DHEC is updating the map weekly. So you can go to DHEC, um, their website, to see what the disease activity is for this week. But I'm pretty sure with things changing, you know, if, if things change and we have the, the lower area of spread or the medium area of spread um, over time or as we get closer to the start dates, I'm pretty sure the district will have the flexibility to make adjustments. But to, to say... For the governor to say, you know, that he would recommend for our state superintendent to only approve plans that had his options, you know, that was a bit much, especially when districts have been using the Accelerate Ed recommendations to develop their plans all along. Got you. There's a term that I've heard a lot in the news. I've heard a lot on social media uh, when it comes to education. And and we we hear this term about vulnerable communities. Uh, within the context of education and with your concerns with this letter, can you talk about um, the challenge as it relates to uh, vulnerable communities and what that means? Uh, yes. When I mention the term vulnerable uh, communities, I'm thinking about as we look in the news and as we look in the media, the populations that are disproportionately affected by this virus. And you can pull up any website in any area and see that black and brown populations are affected by this virus. And sometimes they say that it is because of them being essential workers. And I think about it like the bus drivers in our schools, um, working jobs, fast food jobs, and even some people that are working as nurses and working in the hospitals, regardless of their role, um, those are our most vulnerable populations. And it's because of their job and because of their positions, um, they're more, we're more, more, it's possibly, 
it's more likely for them to be able to get um, this disease or they're more susceptible to this disease. So um, right now, when we talk about vulnerable top populations, I'm talking about um, our black and brown communities. And then I can even talking about talk about some of our teachers that are immunocompromised or have underlying health issues. There are some teachers that are cancer survivors. There are some teachers that have diseases such as diabetes, um, high blood pressures, some that are um, recovering from strokes and all of the above. So those are our vulnerable populations. And we want to make sure that we have something in place to keep them in safe, keep them safe. They don't need to be in a school building five days a week. That's not that's not something that will keep them safe. That that puts them at risk for getting COVID nineteen, and it puts them at risk for dying. It's not okay to lose one student or one teacher or one person inside of a school building, bus driver, anybody to this virus when it's something that's preventable by going virtual until it's safe. Man, that's that's powerful. I want to ask you because I mean you've talked to administrators, you've obviously um being you know the teacher of the year has, has put you in a unique position in terms of the dialogues and conversations um that you that you've been able to have i really want to ask you this question from the perspective of teachers what type of feedback have you gotten from teachers in terms of you know just the very real concerns that they have in terms of uh this virus i've heard things uh i've heard terms like you know uh living wills and just a lot of just dire and morbid conversations uh, from teachers in light of reopening schools. Have you had some of those conversations as well? Yes. Um, after writing a letter, I had an overwhelming response of people, you know, on the comment section. Uh, teachers were saying, you know, teachers are updating their wheels right now. And some of the ones that really touched my heart were grandparents that responded. Um, it was a grandparent that says, you know, I have diabetes and I have all of these underlying health issues, and I watch my three-year-old grandson and my seven-year-old granddaughter, and I'm afraid that they'll bring this virus home to to me. And, and teachers are also concerned about children um, and sanitizing everything in the room. They said, you know, I put out a bucket of crayons, and how do I make sure that you know, how do I clean all of that? How do I clean up after every student? Uh, and I thought about like our CTE courses as well. If it's wood shop or any place where you work with a bucket of nails, how do you sanitize that to, to make sure that those the students aren't spread it, spreading any germs around? So there, there are so many concerns and a, and a lot of teachers are, are concerned about their safety and potentially bringing that um, bringing that home to their families as well and even I, I spoke to one of my colleagues his wife is pregnant and he said you know if they don't have the virtual option for myself and my wife uh it could lead to us leaving the profession this wow. year and that's that's sad because we're already um seeing that there's a shortage of teachers uh, in south carolina and even across the nation so it's important for us to do everything that we can to keep the teachers that we have have and accommodate their needs, especially during this virus. I want I'm going to ask you about uh, public education and private education here very shortly, but I just want to get a perspective from you because it's sad to hear you know that 
teachers are considering leaving the profession because it was just three months ago. I felt like the stock of, you know, for teachers, couldn't, you know, um, couldn't have been any higher. You know, parents were, you know, complaining and having concerns about the schoolwork coming home. And so there was like this collective appreciation for teachers. <laughs> what happened to that in the last three months, Shonda? What's the deal? Yeah. Um, you know, March 16th or 15th, when they announced that schools were closing, uh, teachers sprang into action and they made the adjustments to do everything that they could to make sure that students continue to learn throughout our state. I'm talking about teachers went above and beyond. They were thinking outside of the box and just doing everything, making phone calls, sending letters home. I even heard about a teacher that um, when she felt that her students weren't connecting with her, she would drive around and put a lawn chair in the yard and read to the student while they sat at the door. This was teachers going above and beyond to make sure students continue to learn and to see during this time, when it's time to go back to school, that some of our elected officials um, are not listening to the concerns of teachers, you know, I can see how that's frustrating or even receiving negative comments about their work throughout the process, which is, I I told teachers, I was like, you all know you're doing an amazing job. Uh, What was stated is not true. I want you to know that you know you you guys went above and beyond during this period so don't pay attention to any any of that keep doing what you're doing but my main main thing um to say um to anyone in this time period in this um pandemic we have to continue to listen to teachers voices and take care of our teachers because they're needed those the teachers are the ones that can reach the students they'll be the ones that um help the students get back on track after having this summer slide or losing learning and they'll do it because they care about the kids and they care about um, seeing them be successful um, in the future this is our passion and every teacher you can ask them we want to be back in the classroom but the main issue is making sure that we're able to get back safely and it's not something where we go for a day and have to come home because of a COVID outbreak but we want to go and go for the rest of the year. We want to spend the 190 or 180 days with our students. That's a great commentary. I, as I mentioned earlier, so much of the conversation, and I'll really just say the conflict um, that we're seeing across the country, um, some of this is, is, is in regards to you know the conversation about public education, and it shouldn't be versus private education. They should be able to you know, coexist, but the reality is, is that it's oftentimes it's public education versus private education. And I want to ask you about that within the context of your letter, because you, you, um, you challenged uh, the state and you challenged, you know, allies of education to make sure that we fully fund schools. Talk about that and what that means. Yes. Um, don't get me wrong. I believe that all students should have access to a high quality and equitable education. And I think that parents should be able to choose that option. And if parents have the finance finances to send their kids to private school and, and pay for that, you know, that's great. I celebrate that. I love the students and love the parents that can do that. But I'm a public education teacher, and I've traveled across the state, and I've seen the vast inequities. In South Carolina, we still have a place called the Corridor of Shame where we know that, you know, buildings and resources are not available and teachers are not available um, to some of the students like 
like they should be. And I think that is a result of not funding, not fully funding public education for this 12, for approximately 12 years. So fully funding education, making sure that every student have all the dollars that are promised to, that was promised to them. Education hasn't been fully funded in South Carolina for almost 12 years. And I think that's sad, especially if we know that there are some areas that lack resources and lacks the things that students need to be successful. Thank you so much for that. I want to ask you because so many people are listening and I I think people kind of are gaining a greater understanding of the challenges that you all face just to be succinct and just to be concise. What needs to happen right now in education to start to create um, not only safe conditions um, for students, teachers and, and faculty, but also to create more equitable conditions? What needs to happen just in this moment in the next few months? Well, in the next few months, I really hope that school districts use those uh, accelerate ed guidelines um, as they develop their school plans because there were components on there about how schools should safely clean their buildings, um, how they should potentially have nurses or access to nurses within their schools, how they, it's several different things that, that they should do, but I think it's really focusing on the documentation, the Accelerate Ed documentation, and monitoring their plan. So if their plan gets approved by the the State Department of Education, um, their reopening plan, make sure that they're monitoring, adjusting as uh, conditions change. But right now, I'm hoping that school districts, you know, really utilize that plan. And for parents, uh, right now, I think that, you know, this is the time for them to Think about the needs of their family. Think about their children. Uh, and what will be the safest for them and their families? Because they have options. You know, you don't have to sign your kid up to go into a public um, school or not, I wouldn't say public school, but your neighborhood school or your normal school this year. Uh, you can also sign up for those virtual charter schools or virtual schools or even virtual SC. So look at your options and think about the options that will keep your child and your family safe. And this, this will be something temporarily, um, temporary. I'm hopeful that, you know, the vaccine will come and these numbers will start decreasing. But right now, you know, look into other look into other options uh, for your children. So I would just tell everybody right now to to monitor, you know, the disease activity, Uh, listen to the scientists, look at the data, listen to the experts and see what they're saying, because those are the people, the epidemiologists that, you know, know a lot about disease activity and they're monitoring uh, the spread. So really focusing on those um, components, those resources that we have before we make decisions about parents, you know, sending the kids back to school and school districts, whether they're opening uh, virtual or with that hybrid uh, model. So, yeah, that's what I'll say uh, for that. You said it in a very nice way. I'm going to tell y'all listening, hey, man, wear a mask. Listen to what the experts are saying. Like, please, begging you, come on, stop, like, do what needs yeah. to be done so we can uh so we can flatten this curve. I, I haven't heard that term in so long, but I mean that's it seems like you know as this thing was you know in March and April and I think there was a, a more of a sense of, sense of urgency to flatten the curve. I haven't really heard that terminology in a while. It's it's unfortunate yeah. that that we haven't really had that energy. 
Um, as I mentioned earlier, look, and I, I should be apologizing because look, you've been the teacher of the year now for a while. Should I should have had you on the podcast for a while, but I I do want to ask you about your experience uh, in that regard, um, and some of what you've been able to see. Um, how much of it, you know, has well, I'll ask you like this. Uh, in that capacity, how much of being a teacher of the year um, is about um, is about advocacy work? Um, not only at, um, advocating on behalf of teachers, um, but really just the, the profession in general. Like, I feel like in many ways you're like an ambassador. Yes. So this year I have been an ambassador and an advocate for know over 50,000 teachers in the state and just trying to use my voice and um, use my voice in a positive way to promote the profession so that we can recruit other teachers and young people um, into the profession and also talking about some of the concerns um, that I had as a classroom teacher um, anywhere from issues of um, equity and access resources because traveling around the state I've been able to see that, you know, our affluent districts and what they have to offer students, um, as well as some of our lower income schools and, you know, what they don't have and what they need and what would be helpful to um, increase their students' experiences and prepare them for the future to be college and career ready. So it, it's been eye-opening and it's caused me to to want to take a deeper dive into educational policy because um, our legislators are the ones that are making decisions for education and it truly impacts what teachers do inside the classroom, what students learn. So I'm trying to learn a little bit more. Well, I want to take a deeper dive um, into educational policy so that I can, you know, help shape that uh, and, and help uh, get teachers some of the resources and students some of the resources that they need in order to be successful. So it's, it's been an amazing adventure being able to see all of the, the teachers across the the state and the interactions have been phenomenal they welcome me in every place with open arms that's awesome and with that and you're talking about wanting to get more in educational policy uh what what is the future like for you look what does the future look like for you um immediate and and maybe even beyond that (laughs) so well um this year for 2021 i was named a Albert, an Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow. And what that means, I'm one of 15 educators that was selected to go to Washington, Washington D.C. and serve, um, serve as a congressional fellow. So um, there's some, some of the Albert Einstein Fellows serve in federal agencies such as the DOD or NASA, but I had the opportunity to serve as a congressional fellow, so I'll be working on Capitol Hill and working to shape uh, educational policy and um, STEM policy for students, and I just want to do that and be able to bring all of this knowledge back to my state um, and help students and teachers and um, enhance education here in South Carolina. Man. Uh, I can look. I feel like I'm speaking for not just the state, of, the state of South Carolina, but I'm speaking for the CSRA. Look, I'm speaking for the Valley. You know, I'm speaking for all of us here who have known you for many years, man. We're so proud of you. Um, keep up the great work and Thank just you. keep up 
you know, just advocating, you know, on behalf of, of students and teachers. Shonda Jefferson, thank you so much for appearing on the show or for, uh, for coming on the show today. Thank you. And all I would tell everybody right now, especially on this episode, this is important. Make sure that you wear a mask if you go out in public to do everything that we can to slow the spread. Because more than anything else, I want our kids to be back in school, seeing their teachers and, you know, having the learning experiences that I had, you know, when I was going up through school. So wear a mask so that we can get back to, to normal. When we come back, you'll hear from a teacher who says he's ready to go back to school. Ladies and gentlemen, Israel Butler, when we come back, I'm making a difference. It's the West Coast diva. Tell them, follow the leader. It's yo, yo. You're listening to Making the Difference with Ken Making. Got a sweet tooth? Well, get ready because it's about to get socked in a tasty way. My name is Shiraz Sockwell, and I'm the founder and baker of Saki Sweets. A passion for baking homemade sweets was passed down to me from my grandmother. It's now my desire to keep her tradition alive and provide the utmost service. Cheesecakes, cupcakes, pies, you name it, we have it. What I really take pride in are our themed cakes. Do you have a child's birthday or a special occasion coming up? We can give it a unique flair with a cartoon style, game, or whatever you desire. Call me today at 803-761-4137 or hit me up on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sweets, and that's spelled S-O-C-K-Y-S-S-W-E-E-T-S or you can hit me up on my Instagram handle also at Sweets. Do you need insurance for your car, home, life, or business? Then trust Jay Harvey, your Allstate insurance agent in Evans, Georgia. He opened his agency in 2017 because he loves helping and working with people. As a husband and father, he understands the importance of helping families prepare for the unexpected. You can get a personalized insurance quote today by calling 706-434-8106. Jay's office is located at 3118-8. William Few Parkway in Evans, Georgia. Remember, you're in good hands with Jay Harvey, your neighborhood Allstate insurance agent. What's going on, everybody? It's Knife Wonder right here, man. And you're checking out Making a Difference with my man, Ken Macon. Keep it locked. Peace. Welcome to Making a Difference. I'm your host, Ken Macon, here with a young man who, if if you've been a part of this Making a Difference movement over the last five years, uh, if you'll remember when we were over at WKZK, uh, we had this young man to come in. And, uh, you know, speak uh, to the listening audience. And you really just had some great information in terms of uh, local education and developments and different things like that that were going on. Of course, with COVID-19 um, and the pandemic and I mean, the, the world is like really just <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy to say the least. I uh, just want to bring him in once again just to provide, you know, just a, a unique uh, insight, especially, you know, with uh, the conversation of reopening schools in both Georgia, South Carolina and really uh, across the country. I want to bring in Israel Butler, uh, who actually works um, in Richmond County, uh, works in the school district over there. How you doing, Israel? I'm doing great. How you doing? Doing well, man. Uh, glad to have you on the show, as always. Um, I wanted to bring you on uh, simply because I'm I'm looking at diff- uh, having uh, differing perspectives. I think there's a way that, you know, I think when it comes to just highly contested uh, topics, we kind of have a, a both sides 
uh, type of philosophy in this country that I think is really unhealthy for discourse. Um, in this particular conversation, I want to um, bring in a unique perspective in the way of an argument for bringing kids to school um, under the right conditions. I had a chance to read your Facebook post the other day, and um, yes. you were saying that you were actually an advocate of um, bringing students back to school. Can you talk about that perspective? Yes. Uh, well, when I when I posted that, um, when I posted that, I had uh, been seeing a lot of pushback from most teachers about reopening schools, and understandably so. I do see their side of the argument. Uh, I don't believe in putting students in danger or educators with pre-existing conditions or just you know older for whatever reason. I, I believe that both teachers and the parents and students should have a choice. Um, obviously, school's going to be a lot different this year whenever it starts. Richmond County, we're looking at September 8th, and I'm fine with that. Reason being is because as part of my teacher preparation process, I've had to adapt to different learning styles uh, in the classroom, but more specifically, I learned how to put my own curriculum online. So I'm kind of used to it. So, and when I speak on reopening schools, I'm mainly speaking from a high school level. Uh, and I can understand why elementary teachers don't feel comfortable or the parents of elementary students don't feel comfortable coming back because those children, uh, that age group of children, they tend to be, be very touchy. They don't like to, uh, sometimes they don't follow directions uh, as say, you know, older kids, but then the same thing can be said about older kids. <laughs> uh, but um, I mean, I, I, can, I can understand why they would be a little bit more apprehensive about going back. Um, in terms of what I teach, I teach workforce part of uh, workforce education specifically like IT broadcast so I will be honest um, my opinions are or, or my perspective is a little bit different from say somebody from a teacher who teaches maybe automotive a very hands-on class or a teacher or like a fifth grade elementary school teacher a lot of what they teach with reading ELA math that can be taught online um, so really I don't going back to school I, I'm, I'm open to teaching both face-to-face and virtual learners. And when I posted that status about supporting opening schools, I was using my, not only my experience from the classroom, but I was also using my experience from my studies. Uh, part of my studies uh, to get my teacher prep license and all that was rooted in technology, more specifically using technology to teach. So I, I kind of had the benefit. I, I kind of had a head start with the pandemic. I, a lot of my coursework a lot of my learning resources were online already uh, because it was an, it's an IT class that I teach my students, specifically AP. It's an AP computer science class. So a lot of my stuff is online. Uh, so coming back in uh, September 8th, me, the reason why I'm so uh, kind of gung-ho about uh, opening the schools, and I understand my fellow peers may not uh, agree with me on this, but I'm kind of looking at this in terms of uh, this is a generation of students that we have to keep. Uh, moving forward and there, there's a lot of there's a lot of tough things uh that kind of go with that because like i told you in earlier conversations uh just throughout my educational uh career and prepping to become a certified a fully certified educator i kind of you know i kind of adopted a little bit of a major pain attitude <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you will they, they, i just ultimately and the reason why i adopted that attitude is because taxpayer funds for years have been used to purchase technology, enough technology, not just computers that are stationary, that are to be stationary in the classroom, anything from tablets 
uh, the donations of Wi-Fi hotspots. Um, what else? Uh, one-to-one devices such as laptops. So enough money has been spent among the different carriers of technology, HP, Dell, uh, different learning management systems. So even if even if we are strictly online with the schooling, I mean, I, I do believe that the education can can resume now. The challenge with virtual learning is this. Yeah, you get to do that. You get to study in the comfort of your own home. And I'm telling you, as a 31-year-old man, I've done two degree programs online. It is very hard to stay focused. It's not something where you flip open the computer screen and the learning just happens. If I'm in my living room or if I'm elsewhere, my mind will wander. Or I may get up to go uh, to the kitchen. Or You know, it's, it's a lot of things that you can, you got to really apply yourself in a virtual learning format. And that might not be for everybody. The reason why I say we should open schools up at the at the appropriate date, some kids don't have that type of luxury where they can wake up and do school in the living room, whether it's a connectivity issue or other uh, internalized home problems. It, it just It's just not a safe space for them to learn. School provides a lot of structure for a lot of kids, especially lower-income children, not just the food aspect, but it's just for once. It's this one place you can come to at least seven and a half, eight hours out the day, and there's some structure to it. So that's a that's a great commentary, and it really just brings us into the discussion of when it comes to education, and when we talk about you know reforms and you know all all of these different components. Um, obviously, there's a great deal of concern with the pandemic in terms of education. You know, when you and I talk, we don't talk about reform; we talk about revolution. And what that means is, is that, you know, there really needs to be a paradigm shift. You know, you got 25 to 30 kids in the classroom. That's not conducive to learning. So the pandemic, as bad as it is, it creates an opportunity to say, hey, let's dramatically uh, reduce class sizes to, you know, um, to maybe 10 students. That is obviously something that's practical in terms of um, social distancing, but it's also practical in terms of uh, creating best case scenarios for not only students, but also teachers and then by extension, you know, um, administrators. So, like I said, they're just a, a great number of, I think, opportunities here. I want to uh, touch on something that you um, had addressed earlier, yes. um, which is uh, just in your experience. And, and and actually, before I do that, let me ask you this. I believe a lot of the issue is, is that the school system on the whole, um, I think, is not just unprepared for the pandemic, but I just think there's a, a certain level of unpreparedness when it comes to particularly, um, as you mentioned, lower income schools. Talk about that um, in terms of not only, like I said, I mean, the school system, I mean, we've we've been aware of this since March and now we're in July, you know, getting ready to start school in August. And it just seems like there's a spirit of unpreparedness. I won't necessarily have you to speak on Richmond County, but I mean, there are neighboring counties that I'm sure you're looking yes. at and kind of shaking your head. Yes. Well, with uh, an analogy for this. Um, so technology is pretty much what is holding a lot of things together at this point because it's, it's a platform where you don't have to be in the same spot, especially during times of a pandemic. I think what we're looking at, and it's, this is not just a Richmond County thing. We see this in, it doesn't matter what county we're talking about. We can I can take a dart, throw it at any map uh, <laughs> in the, in, of the continental U.S., and I'm pretty sure the same. All these school districts are having the same issue. It's like uh, it's like that one guy on a neighborhood. His shed is full of the best lawn, uh, 
technology, the best lawnmower, the best uh, uh, edgers, all that good stuff. But he doesn't know how to use it. I think that's what we're looking at right now. Hmm. We've got a lot of different resources, even in uh, and I think the misconception and, and you got to know that you got to a lot of folks got to realize when I talk to them about the subject. I have knowledge from working at the top level, which is a district district office district office. I'm sorry. Then I went to the classroom. So I see I, I kind of I see how thing how money is spent. I see how resources are allocated. And unfortunately, I have seen how a lot of taxpayer funded equipment lies dusty in a warehouse. So that's I think that's a disservice right there. That's a disservice right there when we have resources being uh, unused, whether they're stuffed in a warehouse or stuffed in a media center. I think uh, I think what this is going to take um, to get through a pandemic, we need people, especially whether it be I don't want to just say the IT department because it's not just IT. When, when people hear IT, they automatically think that they control things within a school system or any network. Some Sometimes, yes, but in a school system, the IT is just there to uh, maintain that student student and employee information is not being leaked. Uh, they, handle, they handle general email, stuff like that. What, what it's going to take is more comprehensive uh, educators who know how to deliver or they know how to help other teachers deliver their content through the best modes, whether it be through Zoom, because of course, and, and another thing I wanted to touch base on before I get too carried away, you brought up smaller class like class sizes. That is something that I myself might have uh, the only fortune of if you compare me to my other educator colleagues. I can honestly say that as uh, the more years I started teaching, I ended up in the early college uh, program at Laney. Our class sizes were small. Now, granted, as you move about the country in a city like Houston, you can't really have small class sizes. However, in the face of this pandemic, or you know, this I, I believe this will be become the new norm. The classroom will truly be blended. For the past 20, 25 years, educational researchers, uh, well-known professionals have always talked about how. Uh, there will be hybrid learning, and I think I think COVID nineteen is kind of it, it. It's not only showing us how unprepared a lot of our school districts are, but it also shows us. It, it's also revealing to us how we can deal with a lot of the problems that educators face. Large classroom sizes. When I first started out, I would have twenty to twenty five kids in a ill-equipped classroom trying to teach them all broadcast at the same time. It's hectic. Now, when you can, and fortunately for me, I was able to uh, progress in my career, and the county moved me to a, uh, to an advanced program, if you will. Those small class sizes make a difference. When you have only 10, 12 kids in the class, unless they're close friends, they're going to sit apart anyway. <laughs> that's, that's just how it is. And so they automatically kind of social distance, at least from my perspective. Um, but I mean, ultimately, I think what we need, we just have, we just need people in these school districts who actually know how to apply technology, uh, to learning. It's whether it's adapting to the virtual setting, cause you, you can teach, in my opinion, I wouldn't, or just from my perspective, I wouldn't have an issue teaching a classroom with 10 kids and 10 online kids. That's easy to me. Now, I can understand understand where certain educators may be or may feel apprehensive about that. 
Um, a lot of older educators, they're, they're used to the more traditional style. So having them convert, you know, their whole legacy, the whole legacy of their career to an online setting or to some new online management system, it can cause a lot of apprehension. And then you take into account the health crisis going on. Uh, I don't know. It's a big mess, but through, uh, through just a, a little bit of competency will, will help us kind of get over this hurdle and both populations of students can learn, uh, especially um, especially with school being postponed. I mean, ultimately, it's going to hope it's going to hurt the kids in the poor communities because they're going to lose access that physical access to education. We're going to expect them to learn online. But let's just be honest. And, and a lot of people I, I feel like a lot of people cannot or do not understand the severity of what some of these kids face. I'm just going to give you a brief example. This isn't based on a true kid or anything like that. But you might have a kid, uh, He's at the end of the, when the pandemic hit, he probably got put in a position where he had to study the rest of his courses online, and he's probably living in one of the worst neighborhoods in the area. He's got other family problems going on. It's, it's hard to focus like that. So I think for the kids who don't have that luxury of virtual learning, we need to just apply the proper procedures, whether it's wearing a mask, sanitizing all the equipment to be used in class, sanitizing it all down, disinfectants. Granted, that's not the end all to this virus, but at the end of the day, we still have to compete with the rest of the world. And then the other countries are back functioning, solely functioning how they should. So that's just my opinion. No, that's, I mean, that's good. I think it's, it's all encompassing. And, you know, even when I, and I mean, obviously, you know, you keep up with what we do with making a difference. Uh, a lot of the contingency and, and where a lot of my opinion came from, you know, were from two things in general. One, uh, just the general unpreparedness of school systems across the country. Um, number two, the general callousness, I think, uh, in particular, you know, when you look at, um, and not to say, not, you know, not to say it's partisan one way or the other, but I think, you know, the exploits of folks like, you know, Henry McMaster, um, I think yes. there are just some, you know, some Republican legislators who I think have stood out in terms of just the callousness um, when it comes to returning back to school with just some of the comments um, that have been made. I want to ask you about the feasibility of something. And yes. that's taking all of this into consideration. Um, what's the feasibility of saying, OK, you know, we understand all of the concerns that have been presented. Um, why not, you know, just put everything on hold until January? Um, and, you know, make sure every, you know, every kid gets a computer, um, make sure that we maintain, um, you know, Monday through Friday, we're going to bring meals through the neighborhoods, uh, to make sure the kids are fed and do that until January, until we can come up with, a um, an adequate plan to address both, you know, uh, kids and families who are going to be able to take advantage of virtual learning versus kids who, you know, whether it be connectivity issues or just life issues are not going to be able to, you know, enjoy those same advantages. What do you think is the feasibility of that? <laughs> so I'm going to get a little bit radical with this. No, no, that's, that's what we want. That's what we want here. Yes, sir. Let's I'm go. I'm going to get a little bit radical. <laughs> I, number, number one, I don't think it should take that long. Okay. Like, And that's, yeah, and, and absolutely. I, I'm not trying to tie in the whole stimulus payment things, but let's take the stimulus news that we're hearing on the second payment. Every week you hear an update about how it's going to get extended out longer. I don't understand how hard it is for people who get paid to enact legislation for us. I don't understand what's so hard about their job that they can't get everything done in one meeting is what I'm saying. I come from a background where I had to flip out maybe 20, 30 pieces in an hour for one party guest. 
Meanwhile, everybody else wants lasagnas and shambles. But but I don't think it should take that long to get back into the groove of that education. Reason why I'm gonna get a little bit radical, companies like HP, our cell phone providers, Sprint, T Mobile, why aren't they donating hotspots? We're their consumer base. They don't manufacture anything over here. The least they could do is give us some free stuff so we can get our education back rolling. If people are that, if I see it like this, if the majority of parents and teachers are not comfortable meeting in a physical setting for education, fine. That is okay. We just need to resume online as soon as possible because at the end of the day, there's an entire there's an entire list of nations who are still competing with us, who are still trying to come over here and become employed. And they want to follow that American dream, too. Meanwhile, our kids who can't afford it, who can't afford to benefit from virtual learning, things like that, they're going to fall behind. They're going to fall behind in the workforce. There needs to be a dot-com revolution within our community, especially on this side of the U.S. continental map. There needs to be a dot-com revolution. And the more time we take away from that, the more we're losing. It shouldn't take all these meetings. It shouldn't take all of that. That's one thing I hate (laughs) about work is having too many meetings. We're having all these meetings and nothing is done. Right. We we can go out to lunch every day. We can talk about it over dinner, blah, blah, blah. What is getting done? Something should have been done. They should have known back in June that, okay... This is the model we need to follow. We don't know when, because it's a virus. It's not like Bigfoot is making his way around the country and terrorizing people. It's not a tangible threat. It's something we cannot see. They should have known months ago what they were going to do. It doesn't take all that. We've got all these degrees, and I'm not talking about one school system. I'm just saying in general. We've got all these degrees, all these salaries packed into one room, and we're still trying to figure out what's going on. No, first of all, all the companies that, like I said earlier, that we buy technology from, they should have been giving up hotspots and devices. Every year, school systems have to, they get a budget for technology in particular from the federal government. That money has to get spent, has to get spent. If it doesn't get spent, then you got a problem. Now you got to report to the feds and now there's a bunch of paperwork. So we have to spend money with these companies. So physically on the technology aspect of it, our students should have been prepared. And as far as the model in which uh, the school district should adopt, I mean, I don't understand what's what's so difficult about it beyond equipping the students. If all you need is the teacher to be in front of a laptop, or whether it's in the classroom or the privacy of their own home, let's 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 get this train back going. That's that's pretty much what I've what I that's pretty much my attitude right now. I've been out of the classroom since March. Right. Now, granted, I've been still teaching. I've been still preparing my students up until that AP deadline. But I've been out of I've been out of the classroom since March. It's it's, it's the end of July now. I put all those, those those hours into practicums and these tests, and now I don't have access to my classroom. I'm not trying to sound selfish, but that's what I grinded for. Right. I grinded for a classroom to teach students. Not that I'm saying the students have to get get there, as I mentioned earlier. I'm one of the few teacher. I'm one of the few types of teachers who can completely adapt curriculum online. Automotive teacher, the cosmetology teacher, it's a little bit more different. Right. So I'm ready to get back to work in some way, shape, or form. But just to keep stalling it, 
Because I feel like at this point we're just kind of waiting. I'm ready to. I'm ready for a final uh, start date, and I'm ready to go ahead and get my curriculum back up and running. That's pretty much where I'm at right now. That's good. I mean, like I said, this is this is a, a powerful commentary from you, um, in a lot of different areas. What I want to ask you is, is that because you've talked, you know, very eloquently about technology, and I think you've really broken it down in a way that people who are outside of the classroom can really get into the classroom, get into the classroom, and really get an understanding of what goes on systemically. Um, what needs to happen in addition to a technological piece, um, in terms of just a piece where we say, okay, we need to have free breakfast and free lunch if we're going to bring these kids back. Um, kind of talk about that and just the. I, the obvious word is empathy, but I think there needs to be a, a deliberate movement and understanding based on the fact that we have kids in the school system who um, who require these things. And if we're going to make standardized testing and if we're going to say, well, hey, you got to, you know, if there are going to be certain performance benchmarks, you got to understand that we need to make sure that the kids are um, not only mentally prepared, but just physically prepared and socially prepared for these challenges and, and for school in general. Yes. Um, but, I, and, and, and that's what I'm asking you is like, just kind of take us through, um, the urgency that's needed to say, Hey, we need free breakfast and free lunch. Well, the, first of all, the, the whole free, the free lunch and free breakfast ordeal, I, I believe Richmond County, I, I don't have all my data on, on this, but I know Richmond County is one of the few counties or is a county that for the most part at most schools that are title one, they do give students or they used to give students free and they used to give students free lunch and breakfast. So I believe something, I think we had this conversation a couple of days ago. If, if I have to send, if I'm obligated by the government to send my children to school, uh, they should, they should be fed there. That's just my opinion. We, we put a lot of money into, into education. It can be afforded. I mean, it, it doesn't cost that much to, to feed a child. So I don't even think they should be paying uh, at that level. Um, in terms of like how we should bring them back, uh, number one, number one, what they should have done or what I would have done if I would have been over a big procedure like this, surveyed as many parents as possible that are in the school district to see which form of education they prefer, face-to-face -face or virtual. Because in all honesty, we really cannot, you cannot completely cut off physical uh, physical pedagogy, which is education in the classroom. You can't really just cut it off and say we're not doing it anymore. Right. At the end of the day, our educational system was kind of built around the working family. And I think a lot of folks don't, a lot of, a, a lot of folks kind of, I don't want to say live in luxury, but they don't realize what it's like, what it's like to be a working parent with children. It's very difficult because you have to, you have to take into account where they are every hour of the day. And for, for somebody that works eight to five, I mean, they could put them in daycare, but, you know, that's a very hefty, that, that's a very hefty fee or whatnot. So a lot of, a lot of families can, can afford not to send their kids to school is what I'm saying. I want to interject, I want to, I want to interject real quick because I yeah. think, and I would love to get your, your take on this is that yes. the nine to five scenario is ideal, but there are some parents who work from 6 PM to 6 AM. So you got yes. a graveyard shift. Like, I mean, kind of take the listening audience through, you know, the additional burden of responsibility um, that is also that is on the parent and on the child because the parent's not always there. Exactly. Now, with the, the parents who, yeah, the, the nine to five job situation, everybody kind of wants that nine to five, Monday through Friday off on the weekend. But unfortunately, 
you got some you got parents that work 12 hour shifts uh in various fields so that's very um honestly that's very tough when, when you have a parent that's gone overnight a lot of times we see the uh student a lot of times we will see i've encountered students who are essentially like a co-parent if you will when the when the mother or the father if they're in a single parent household when those parents or parent is at work then they kind of got to handle things for themselves and honestly i don't i don't have an answer for that mm-hmm. I, I, I i cannot think of a good answer to to solve that um because i mean one could say oh we could offer school at night but i mean that's kind of impractical if you will so i i don't i don't know what to do about situations like that I, i'll be the first one to tell you but right. what i will say that just abandoning pretty much uh, abandoning the physical teaching uh the physical classroom that that's going to hurt those families even worse it's just going to hurt those families even worse because but most importantly that the the child misses out on a lot a lot of can the child can miss out on a lot of education if their home life isn't structured structured not to say that a kid whose parents works at night they're destined for failure no i'm not saying that at all some some families can get by with having their child take care of themselves overnight or whatever i i'm not one to judge Everybody's got a unique, uh, unique situation, and I, I'm, I'm gonna be honest. I kind of look at my teacher colleagues, who uh, who have their gripes and grievances with returning to school. I, I, I just, I, I can't agree with them all the time. I'm open to their views, and I understand why they feel the way they do. But me personally, I look at it like this: I'm blessed to be in a profession where I make anywhere, and I'm not giving out my salary, but. And this does not go for all teachers. Right. This is just, I'm speaking as a certified teacher. I'm blessed enough to make, I brought up an Italian restaurant earlier, a place I used to work at. What I would make at Ferrando's, I would have to make, what I made there to get a full-time paycheck at an Italian restaurant I used to work at, I would have to work Monday through Sunday, all doubles, to get what I make in a day. Hmm. So I'm very appreciative of my career. I know there's dangers out there. There's dangers anywhere. And I'm not trying to get too political. You got schools that get shot up. You've got, uh, you over the years, I'm not going to say any school names, but you have had tuberculosis scares of schools in the area. That's an airborne blood disease, if I'm not mistaken. You've, got, you've had schools in the past that have had bad mold problems. Now, granted, that's nowhere near as bad as covid but if you send your kids every day to a moldy building, what's what's really the difference? You're still putting them in danger. So there's always going to be dangers out there. there, there there's always going to be all types of dangers out there. The best thing we can do is is, is you know be as preventative and and cooperate as possible. Because in my opinion, the reason why the pandemic has gotten this bad in this country and not in our neighboring nations like Canada and Mexico is because people want to do what their people want to do their own thing. People don't want to wear a mask, or people want to go certain places. There's no kind of accountability. There, there's a lot of doubt. Now, I can't, I can't say that I completely blame uh, the common man who doesn't believe the mask work. Because I mean, the government is just—I mean, can you really trust them? Let's just be honest. They've done a lot of things in the past along political lines, blase, blase. So it's kind of hard to trust them. And, th- and this is where we're at today. But ultimately, returning back, I think. If they haven't by now, parents, students, and teachers need to be given uh, a choice on whether they want to re- uh, do the virtual model 
or the uh, the physical in class in classroom educational model. From there, of course, mandating the mask. I teach in the high school level. I don't teach. I don't speak for elementary or middle school, but in high school, I'm sure the, the students find fashion in the mask. I honestly do believe that. I've seen some very creative masks uh, made and sold online. <laughs> um, as long as we help our fellow custodians to keep the I mean, we should have been doing this anyway, but as long as we help them to sanitize things and keep the area clean and, you know, making sure that that the students aren't too much in each other's spaces, I mean, that's about the best we can do. Because as I said earlier, I'm going to keep reiterating, we are still, we are still competing with the rest of the globe. Right. It's, it's like two, it's like two high school teams. One high school team, their practice field might have gotten flooded or or just damaged in some way where they can't really practice on it. But the other team, their facilities are fine, or they might have had the same thing happen, but they found a way to work around it. We still have to do that. We can't just put a hold on something, because when we put a hold on it, I, I, in my own opinion, I, I believe it's going to have it's going to have some very detrimental ramifications on the students and the professional industry if we keep stalling school. The more we stall school, we know how, and I don't want to, just paint lines, uh, just paint a picture of all Republicans. But a lot of our conservative governors, I mean, the president himself has threatened uh, to cut federal funding. Whether or not he can do that or not, I'm not here to argue with. All I'm saying is mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be part. I'm not trying to be part of a huge segment of the workforce that gets cut because they deem us uh, unnecessary or, or whatnot. So uh, it's going to have an impact on the teachers. It's going to have an impact on the parents and their, and their students either way. But we still got to compete. We still have to compete. Man, I, and as a matter of fact, you were reading my mind because I was going to ask you, you know, what is all of this going to mean for public education? But, you know, you, you've already spoken to that. And um, and obviously you're you're a proponent um, and an advocate for public education. Um, and that is something that we need to try to not only maintain, but clearly um, we need to um, to renovate. And, and like I said, almost have a revolution in terms of public education to, to have these things change. But man, great conversation here with uh, with Israel Butler. Um, is there any way that people can uh, get in touch with you? Because I know people, um, folks are, are going to hear this conversation. They may say, well, man, um, you know, how uh, can you give me some advice or just some insight? How can people get in touch with you if that's an option? Oh, uh, well, I'm on Facebook. Just look up my name, Israel Butler. Or um, if you want to contact me for like lesson plan ideas, things like that, uh, my teacher page is still on the Laney website, laney.rcboe.org. But as I told my um, my friends on Facebook a couple, about two weeks ago, they are transferring me to the Academy of Richmond County. Unfortunately, the early college program was uh, cut this summer, but I am I will be at uh, ARC this school year. So if you don't see me, uh, after this month on the Laney website, that means they moved me to, uh, ARC down the road. Good to know, man. Appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much. We'll be back with Earl Gray Summers after the break, but first I want to play this joint from the class of 3000 soundtrack. If you're not familiar with the class of 3000, uh, Andre 3000, uh, one half of outcast, uh, did this cartoon, uh, way back when, uh, the name of the cartoon was class of 3000 had an amazing soundtrack. So I want to play from one of the songs off of that soundtrack. It's called throwdown. Hope you enjoy. You're listening to Making a Difference. Do I watch cartoons? Class of 3000. Folk, what you heard? Play your penny like we got to throw down. Ali, ali, oxen, free your body when we come to your town. 
No, Madison. You're supposed to let them know what instrument you play. My name is Lauren Macon, and you are listening to Making a Difference with my handsome husband, Ken Macon. This is Donald Doe and Michael Doe with Family Financial Consultants. Do you need help with Medicare, with affordable mortgage and life insurance, building an estate for your child? We provide these types of services for you and much more. As independent insurance brokers, we take pride in coming into people's homes and not only saving them money, but changing their lives. Imagine only paying a few dollars for your medicine instead of hundreds, or cutting the cost of your insurance premiums. Our goal is to provide affordable policies tailored to your individual needs. Give us a call at 803-293-8915 or 706-503-3933. Family Financial Consultants, LLC, located at 412 Edgefield Road in North Augusta, South Carolina. Agents work for companies, but a broker works for you. Too often, we're left wondering what happened, how it happened, and who made it happen. Too often, that is because we don't know enough about the functions of our local and state governments. Remember this, knowledge is power, engagement is crucial, and you can influence your quality of life based upon the choices you make on election day. Please follow me, Janice Allen Jackson, for the Local Matters Podcast here on SoundCloud. We will be interviewing candidates for various offices, and we don't want you to miss it. Why should you follow Local Matters? Because local does matter. Welcome back to Making a Difference. I'm your host, Ken Macon. I'm here with a friend of the show. In a lot of ways, this show has uh, kind of been like a reunion, man. We're bringing in folks like, if you've been listening to this show like over the last five years, if you listen to this show on KZK, you heard from this young man. Uh, he's really just, uh, uh, he's he's dynamic in the way that he approaches education, just like his ideology, just like his, um, his perspective on it is, you know, there are a lot of things that you really just don't hear um, in other spaces. Uh, he's a second generation educator. He also... Uh, works within the Richmond County School System. So glad to have on the show with us today, Earl Gray Summers. EGS, how you doing, fam? I'm all right, man. I'm good. I'm good. How about you? I'm doing fantastic, man. Um, look, with you know everything considered with the pandemic and you know this idea of of reopening schools, and of course, as we're having these conversations, it would I mean it's just a fit you know to have you on the show, and you've uh have expressed you know some very pointed opinions um on social media in regards to uh, reopening schools. Uh, if you could just kind of share your general thoughts on uh, your thoughts on uh, reopening schools, whether you agree, disagree with it, and just kind of take us through that in context. Absolutely, man. And thank you again for having me on the show. I really appreciate it, man. Um, it, it's been funny because as an educator, you're taught that everything is about logic and reason and rational thinking. And in light of this COVID-19 crisis, we've seen the exact opposite of all that, man. So imagine us as teachers trying to convince young people that you should think, you know, rationally and reasonably, and then looking at the adults, and there's no reason going on. Um, They're opening schools back up, and first of all, they they said that they were going to open August 3rd. And I was joking on social media saying, you know, I, I was always side-eyeing 
August the third. You know, and I'm, I'm watching these COVID nineteen rates spike, and they're actually higher now in Georgia than they were when we first got out of school. So I was trying to again rationalize how do you reopen school when the situation has gotten worse. Um, I was looking at all across the nation at, at um, different people who or different groups who attempted, you know, reopening this or reopening that and seeing the numbers go up, go up, go up consistently. And, you know, it was just scary, man. Um, as an educator, again, it, it was scary on two fronts. It's scary on the prospect of, you know, us being in the classroom um, where we could possibly get, you know, uh, infected and, you know, not having anything, I mean, have, not having a choice because somebody has to be there to work with the kids. But then it's scary on the other hand because what does it say for education that we live in a society where science doesn't matter, where facts don't matter, where logic doesn't matter? So it really makes you question your own livelihood and question what it is you're doing in the classroom because when you come outside the classroom, you don't see the, the manifestation of the very things that you're teaching. So it, it's a scary time, man. It's kind of um, it's like Twilight Zone. It's just very Twilight Zone. <laughs> That's a, that's a great way of putting it. I think the the key theme to what you're talking about is is there's a certain level of uh, vulnerability, not only for students, uh, but also for teachers. Uh, kind of talk about vulnerable communities, because I know you also have, you know, just very profound opinions about um, race and sociology. Uh, just talk about, you know, vulnerable communities and, you know, and, and the kids and I would say in black kids and lower income kids, like I said, those being two different. You know, I feel like we kind of jumble up those um, those that, those terminologies, and we try to say, "Well, all black kids are this," or and it's not that. But right. just talk, but just talk about vulnerable communities within the uh, context of what we're talking about with reopening schools. Absolutely. Um, you know, what's, what's funny when you say vulnerable communities, I'm I'm actually doing something this year that I've never done, um, which is I'm teaching SPED. Uh, normally, I teach general ed classes. Um, and SPED being special education, right? Right. Right. Okay. Uh, special education. <laughs> um, I ran into a parent um, just at random um, at a local department store, and he is the parent of a special needs kid from our school. And it was just interesting talking to him and hearing the panic in his voice because, you know, the, the one good thing I'll say about the county is that they finally did decide, first of all, to push the start date back. So we're not starting on August 3rd. We're actually starting, I believe it's September the 7th or September the 8th. I think it's September 8th, um, yeah. I think it's September 8th. 8th, right. Um, and it's going to be an optional thing where, you know, if a parent wants to, um, they can do distance learning instead of, you know, sending their ca- uh, child directly to campus. The issue is special needs kids, and, you know, you understand that I think most people out there understand, special needs is a broad term that encompasses a lot of different ability levels. And some of those kids require um, being in person with someone to work with them, at, you know, when it comes to scholastics. Um, I never will forget that. There was actually a student I had even this, this past year. He was actually a smart guy. He was an intelligent guy. But just his disposition and the way his mind worked, um, he needed to have someone present with him to, you know, stay on task. Um, so what happens is that as you open school, even if you provide distance learning, in order for everyone to have equal opportunities, because that's the, the phrase that we're all hearing now, equity and equal opportunity in school, there are some students who require uh, having that personal service. 
so inevitably, you're still putting people at risk um, in order to open schools back up. So, you know, when you say vulnerable, you know, of course we have our, 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 the black community, um, the poor who are vulnerable, but one that I definitely want to see more attention paid to is the special needs community. Um, I was speaking with uh, a mentor teacher even uh, yesterday who was telling me that her concern is um, when they open school up, already it's looking like special needs children will be on the back burner. Um, they've got plans and everything set in place for you know the general ed students, and then it's kind of like once they take care of the general ed students, then they start to focus on um, you know the, the special needs, I guess, as the outliers, so to speak. But if you think about it, being that they're the ones who are most in need and have the most accommodations that they require, they actually should be the first ones that are looked at when it comes to situations like this. Um, if we're not serving them, it's much easier to serve general ed students or whatnot. They don't require as many um, individualized, um, you know, accommodations. But, you know, for the special needs community, um, which is a very, again, diverse community, you know, it seems like you would take care of those people first before you look at everything else. So um, I definitely just want to take this moment just to, to encourage everyone, if you haven't, um, you know, been privy to the situation of, of special needs um, children, definitely pay attention to that because that, that's a, a wide open very vulnerable um group there um as far as the uh, black community um what's been interesting is seeing some of the commentary from uh, different regions in terms of you know different governors and different uh, public officials not just in georgia but across the country um i, I literally saw where someone said the other day you know, allow the black students to go to school uh, first uh, <laughs> before the white students. And obviously it comes off as, you know, what he, what he packaged it as was as an equity thing. You know, in order for, for black students to catch up with white students, let them go back to school first. But none of us are stupid. What he was really saying is let's put them at risk first since we don't know what this thing is going to do. Let's send the black students into the hostile environment first um, and, and see what effect it has on them. And, them. and then if the coast is clear, we'll send, you know, the white students in or whatnot. So, you know, seeing things like that across the country, man, is it, frustrating, but to be expected. Um, that, that's the nation that we live in. I, I know that, that those type things happen and we still have those you know, type people that have those type of sentiments. Um, the, you know, the bias against the poor. Um, one thing that I'm, I'm curious about is what computer access looks like uh, across the country right now. Because I know, um, you know, I, I, I want to say our county has done a great job making sure that our, our students have laptops and things to work with um, at home for those who choose distance learning. Um, I was looking at a map the other day of counties in South Carolina, um, and I saw where there was like a huge um, gap in access to technology, where a lot of students just did not have access. Um, I saw another article the other day. Um, I can't remember if it was based out of Arizona or New Mexico, but there are students who, because they lack uh, access to um, internet at home, would have to park in school parking lots and use the Wi-Fi from the school um, in order to do homework and things like that. So it's a crazy time and we already have disparities and the, the sad thing about times like this is that disparities um glare they glare during times like this to where 
um, underprivileged communities get hit twice or three times as hard as, as other communities. So, um, yeah, but that, that's what I've seen so far out of, um, you know, or the, um, as far as targeting goes, um, if you want to call it targeting. Some mm-hmm. of it's delivered, some of it's, you know, incidental, but. Got you. Yeah. I want to ask you because as we've had conversations, I mean, we've talked about education for many years and you've talked about it specifically um, on this show. I, I want to ask you about two components. I want to ask you about this in terms of uh, because what this feels like to me and, you know, based on, like you said, some of the uh, elected representation, you know, from state to state is that some of this seems like it's, it's very deliberate in terms of it being a an attack on public education. And, and I know you can speak to that specifically. Um, I also want to ask you just in terms of what I'm saying with schools in general is that even if the pandemic was not a factor, I think when you look at um, how we um, how we treat kids in terms of, you know, uh, making sure that they're fed um, just in terms of how we teach kids in terms of black history specifically, um, there's not only a need for reform in schools. Um, but almost a not almost there's a need for a revolt there's a need for a revolution in the way that that we teach and that we take care of our kids i'll ask you about the public education piece of that first uh can you speak to that um and and how some of what we're seeing in the schools and some of the force reopening uh, and how that's a a challenge or maybe even attack on public education Mm. well as far as public education goes um it's funny because you know a public education is under attack absolutely um we know that we have someone in, in a person named Betsy DeVos who is not concerned about the welfare of public education students, um, not concerned about minority students. Um, and we know that for a long time there's been a movement to shift funding from public education to private education. And we know that private education tends to in itself have segregation built into it because, you know, only certain communities have access to it. Um, not to say that every white person is rich and not to say that every black person is poor, but we know how the lines fall. I mean, it is 2020. We don't have to, like, you know, beat around the bush about this. Um, so, yeah, like, I mean, as far as it being an attack on public education, I feel like what COVID-19 has done is uh, catalyze a process that was already underway. Um, and that is kind of a good thing and it's kind of a bad thing. Um, me, myself, I have not been a fan of public education, but it's not that I haven't been a fan of public education, it's that I haven't been a, a fan of the education model as a whole um, in our country. And it's very much like you said, how, for instance, we don't teach uh, black history the way that it needs to be taught. Um, and it's systematically so. When you go back to the history of public education, it was all established uh, because of the factory system. You know, we, we used to be an agrarian society, uh, we became an industrial society. And in becoming an industrial society, we needed to um, train people to be able to work alongside machines. That's really what school was created for, was to set aside a group of people, we call them teenagers, um, and give them the training they need to accommodate this new you know, machine-led world. And then we expanded public education to incorporate other things that were um, not related to the machines and whatnot. But in essence, that's still what it is. So the problem is, in this, these modern times when we need so much more information, um, when sociologically we need to know more about our history so that we can um, improve as a society and so that we can have be a, a just society, because we know that there are things old, such as reparations, um, that, that are not being paid. And the reason they're not being paid is because um, they've managed to teach that the, 
that it's not old in the first place, you know? Mm-hmm. If you can control narratives, um, you can control legislation. And that's really what it, what it uh, boils down to. School is a place where we should be able to have that discussion and have that fight, but it's been engineered to where uh, we haven't been able to do that without, you know, risking our jobs or creating controversy, so forth and so on. So whereas public education is concerned, in a weird way, I'm happy to see the, 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 the fall of it. Um, not that I want to see our kids be harmed, but I think that I want to see the emergence of new types of education because the system, and I say this all the time about systems, systems are organisms. So when you damage a system or when you try to make a change within the system, if that system is structured enough, all it's going to do is adapt to the change that you want to see so that it doesn't ever actually change. Um, people have attempted things with our school systems for years and years trying to improve it. It's gotten better at certain points. It's gotten worse at certain points. But essentially, it's remained the same type of school system it's always been because that's what systems do. So I'm one of the mindset that at, after a certain point, it's time for a system to collapse. Um, it's, it's going to be damaging um, in, in transition. But I think what's going to emerge from it is a better system simply because um, there will be, you know, the allowance for it. Um, I think this is a time for those who have creative ideas and those who have, um, you know, the ingenuity and the know-how and the, uh, the resources to try to break the mold. Because COVID-19 is going to prevent public education and private education um, from adapting to a lot of the changes. I always said that there was like an education monopoly in progress right now. Um, that monopoly can be broken right now because COVID-19 has taken away some of the advantages that public education and private education formally offer. Um, you know, speaking of, speaking of that, um, as we're moving to this distance learning model, you have to ask the question, you know, what is it that sitting at a computer and clicking all day can provide you um, through public education that going to a place like Khan Academy can't already provide you. You know, it's kind of like school is now being watered down to, I mean, it was already watered down to begin with, but now it's really being watered down to literally the bare essentials because that's all distance learning can truly handle. Um, so I, I think the field is wide open, man, and um, I'm, I'm hoping that people will take advantage of it. Hopefully the right people will take advantage of it because on the other side, the wrong people are going to take advantage of it to, as you said, take funding from public education and shift it to private education where some other communities will be able to benefit in ways that other communities won't. So, Man. Yeah. I just, I know people are sitting here listening to this podcast. Like I said, we, we've had these talks. I mean, like I said, we're, I mean, we're like best friends. We've been friends for, for decades. And I still, right. I get chills hearing you talk about education for the simple fact that like these were things that you theorized about like five years ago. Like you and I mean, and you were you've said these things on my show, you know, like, hey, this is this is what's getting ready to happen with education. As a matter of fact, you actually uh, did a uh, had a creative project that was named Here Lies Education um, to to have had those thoughts, you know, whether it be prophecy, clairvoyance, whatever you want to call it. And to now see some of those things, I mean, really just come to life, like how. I mean, some people say, well, man, look, can I get the lottery numbers from you? But it's it's not something that was like necessarily something to be proud of. It's something that I can imagine is just very sobering and can be very scary. Yeah. Um, you know what it is, man? Like, it's 
funny because like we, I joke about being psychic and I joke about being clairvoyant. This is really what it is. It's a very simple thing, and I challenge anybody out there, um, regardless of what you're looking at. This is how things work. If you're open to the truth, if you're open to looking at all of the facts, a lot of times those facts will tell you what the pattern is. I'm always a person who's looking for patterns. So I think a lot of people have a hard time seeing what's coming because they mentally block themselves. They say things must be this way. They come in with a preconceived notion. And then when they come in with a preconceived notion, let's say that they see some data that doesn't match their preconceived notion, they throw the data out. That's what I don't do. I don't come in with a preconceived notion. I say, what facts are there? And I look at the facts, and then once I've seen all the facts, the facts tell me everything else. But if you don't acknowledge the facts, that's what's going to prevent you from seeing what's around the corner. It's the same thing when we talk about uh, fighting racism, right? What's the number one reason that we can't beat racism? Because the people who perpetuate racism don't want to look at history. The facts are already there. You know, everything, when you talk about reparations, right, whether you believe in reparations or not, you have to admit that reparations are owed if you actually look at history. So what do they do? They don't look at history. They do whatever they can (laughs) to reject the information. And that's what a lot of us do. A lot of us, we come up with an idea. We want to be right. Like, it's human nature. We want to be right about everything. So because we want to be right, if information comes up that goes against the position we've taken, we just throw that information out. But if you stop doing that and start looking at all the facts as they are, you would be surprised at some of the things that will come up, like, right before your eyes, and you wouldn't believe how, like, blatantly obvious it is, but it just requires you to look at all the facts. The thing that I've discovered, and I think you, you know, understand this too, people, we live in a capitalist society. What is capitalism about? Capitalism is about making as much money as possible for the least labor possible and exploiting all situations in your favor. So if you just simply take education and say, what's the most exploitive or exploitative thing they can do, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's really it. It's really just looking at it. Business people. We, we live in a society that's run by businesses and business people, CEOs. You know, when, when it comes to Washington, Betsy DeVos, um, I believe it's the wife of the head of the Amway Corporation yep. or, or something uh, along those lines. Right. D- Dick so DeVos, I think, is his name. Say the name I think his name is Dick DeVos. Yeah. So I think that's, yeah. Right, yeah. right. Um, so so um, she, she's tied to business. So all, all these decisions that are being made, they're not being made from a humanistic standpoint. They're being made from a standpoint of revenue, bottom, uh, bottom lines. So if you simply look at it that way, I remember um, years ago we used to change um, – what do you call it? Like when we were switching to the digital digital model, um, we take roles in our classes using uh, various uh, computer apps. But the apps would change every couple of years, and I was like, "How can we change apps every couple of years if the apps working? All it is is that they will find a cheaper app." So there's your business again. If you have a business and you find a cheaper way of doing something, rather than keeping the thing that you know that's working for you, you switch to the cheaper model because it's going to save you more money. So if you simply look at it that way, all the decisions that are being made start to make sense. It's not about what's best for the children. It's not about what's best for the community. It's about saving that money. It's about how are we going to get the most bang for our buck, how are we going to generate the most revenue for the least amount of labor, or how are we going to exploit labor. And let me, I want to switch subjects just for a second. Sure. Um, and if you can run with it, you know, feel free. But I have a great concern right now 
we're just moving to this digital model for the simple fact there was a book that I read years ago when I was in college um, it was called The Transformation of Work in the New Economy um, and what it was is it was talking about how as things become more digital people will have less and less time to themselves right mm. the, the idea used to be that you go to work and you work for a set amount of hours you clock in you clock out and then the rest of the time you have for you your family or your um, self-care or whatever right but in a day, an age of 24-hour digital access your boss can call you any time of day <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> yeah um, i was just telling you i, I had several meetings uh this week and school hasn't even started yet like i'm technically supposed to be on vacation <laughs> but because we have digital access they can now you know send me a text message or send me an email and always have access to me and i challenge people man like be careful learn how to set boundaries if, if, if it's your time off if it's time for you and you're away from your job you have to kind of put your foot down sometimes and say don't cross this line because if you don't the capitalist way is for them to actually infringe on your time because that's a way of getting more labor out of you for less pay. They're not paying you for the extra time that they talk to you. So you're, you know, it's, it's free labor basically. Um, so that's something I'm definitely concerned about um, is, is as things become more digital, which they're, they're forced to now due to COVID-19, um, not just in education, but in, in all, um, in all digital related um, fields, I'm concerned about people now being even more exploited just because of the 24-hour access. Um, you know, I have nothing against hard work, but I also have nothing against getting away from work. There's supposed to be a work-life balance, and a, a digital transition threatens that work-life balance, I feel. So, mm. just something I want to put out there. Man, no, that's, look, I always love a good anti-capitalist, uh, you know, argument and, and conversation. It's just, what you start to realize is, is that... Um, and just like our heroes, you know, when we talk about Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, these type of folks, is that the more you look at, you know, um, anti-racist measures, what ultimately is going to happen is, is that you're going to look at anti-capitalist measures because um, the racism and capitalism piece are, you know, so intertwined and are, you know, are, are married. So the fact that you have brought that up, man, is is greatly appreciated. And I think it's it's relevant to this conversation. And I, I am going to piggyback off of that. Um, what do you think is the feasibility of, a, like I said, not speaking about you or your colleagues, but I just think in general, um, what's the feasibility of a general strike and, you know, strike maybe in, in Georgia or maybe in other states? What's the feasibility of that in light of everything that is, that's happening? Man, um, as far as feasible goes, I think this, didn't a strike already happen in, uh, where was that? Where was that? Was it Gwinnett County? I think where the teachers were outside picketing. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure if that was this week or last week, but there there has been some picketing that has already started. Um, honestly, here's the thing, man, and it's funny because to me, the fate of school is in the hands of the public. Because what's going to happen is whether or not school stays in is going to be determined on whether or not the public embraces the safety warnings um, dealing with COVID-19. If we still have these anti-maskers, you know, so forth and so on in our society, what's going to happen is when they let school back in, um, there's going to be people, people who get infected. There's going to be students who get infected. There's going to be uh, faculty who get infected. Once they get infected, I feel like all bets are off. I think that's going to be the, the pin where people are going to feel like I'm allowed to strike now because you're now threatening my life. And 
that's been an interesting thing that I've witnessed um, throughout this whole COVID-19 discussion is the business community and and school boards. Uh, I was watching the um, the film from the uh, Gwinnett County School Board um, meeting a couple of days ago, which was ridiculous. But it's like these people are reading off of a script, and the common denominator is that they always find some kind of way to say that human lives are not that big a deal. They don't say it that loud, but what they'll say is something like, um, we're prepared for any consequences that may come, or uh, we may have to deal with some um, bumps here and there, or um, in case we run into any difficulty. What they're low-key saying is, in case a person dies, in case a person is hospitalized, in case a person is put on a ventilator. But think about what we spent the last several years stressing about, right? School shooting. Right? We're sitting here saying we care about our kids and we don't want our kids to get hurt. So let's put in like these uh, door stoppers and let's put in these new training methods and let's have these drills now and can we make these bulletproof and so forth. So all about saving lives, but these same people are now trying to minimize um, the, 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 uh, the value of a human life in order to promote business and in order to promote their agenda. So you, if you look see between or read between the, the fine print, you see they're double-talking now. They, they went from caring so much about human lives to, but we don't care enough about human lives to mess up business. <laughs> you know, we don't care <laughs> enough about human lives to interrupt our capitalism, to interrupt our exchange of goods, to interrupt our, our market. You know, for, for the market's sake, let's risk a few lives here. Um, for the market's sake, let's send a few more teachers back in, into classrooms with, with uh, COVID-19. Let's, let's send more it's okay to lose a few. It's just, hey, we'll be all right. A few, hey, what's a few? We, we, we lost 143,000, but we got millions of people here, so it's okay. You know, that's really what they're saying, but they're just finding nice ways to say it. <laughs> Man. I tell you what, uh, look, that was 30 minutes of free game from uh, from Earl Grey Summers. I would encourage you, if you're on Facebook, if you're on social media, definitely follow this brother. Um, Earl, E-A-R-L, Grey, G-R-E-Y, Summers. Um, just like this season, um, he does, you know, does videos from, uh, from time to time. That's been a great format for you, I think, because it allows people to see your face and really see the urgency of some of the issues that you're talking about, man. But, you know, as a brother, I love you, man. And like I said, just um, as a peer, man, I, I appreciate you and I respect you, man. Well, much love, man. I, I respect you likewise, man. You've been doing it for a long time. And I'm, I'm glad to see it growing and expanding. So keep it up, man. Keep it up. It's, it's, you're, you're on your way. I really believe that. Amen. Likewise. Thank you, brother. Thank you guys for listening to Making a Difference. If you liked it, by all means, look, stay around for a while. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash making a difference show. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Twitter handle is difference making D I F F E R E N C E making M A K I N. You can also follow us on SoundCloud and Spotify. SoundCloud is soundcloud.com backslash making a difference. On Spotify, all you have to do is search for making M A K I N apostrophe a difference. Thank you so much for checking in. Love you guys. Peace and God bless. The revolution will not be televised. You see, a lot of times people see, 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 see battles and skirmishes on TV and they say, aha, the revolution is being televised. Nah, the results of the revolution are being televised. The first revolution is when you change your mind about how you look at things and see that there might be another way to look at it that you have not been shown. What you see later on is the results of that, but the revolution, that change that takes place will not be televised.